Hello and welcome to the Manager Mojo Show. Steve Caldwell here and we're so glad that you're here. We use our mojo to really become greater leaders. Now, let's get started by listening to something good. Oh, I feel good. If you're a leader with managers reporting to you, I want to ask you a few questions to ask yourself. Does your leadership team work seamlessly together? Are they focused and organized? Do they function well or fight each other? Do they communicate effectively or are they cloaked with confusion? Do they make decisions efficiently and effectively? Are they hiring, training, and keeping the best talent? If someone leaves, do you have an A player waiting on the bench? Well, if you can't answer yes to all of the above, then perhaps I can help you and your team. I help leadership teams work together harmoniously and achieve greater business results. If you want a, a free assessment and a discussion, just email me, steve at managermojo.com. Tell me you'd like to, to chat for a little bit and we'll schedule a call. Thank you, that's steve at managermojo.com. Hello and welcome everyone to the Manager Mojo Show. Steve Caldwell here and I'm thrilled to introduce my special guest today, Lee Carraher. Now, Lee is the founder and CEO of Double Forte PR and Digital Marketing. It's a 15-year-old national agency working with technology companies, wine brands, and she is known for being a, a communication strategist and she solves big problems. Uh, in addition to the, her uh, day job, she also is the author of two books. One, Millennials in Management, The Essential Guide to Making It Work at Work, and The Boomerang Principle, Inspiring Lifetime Loyalty from Employees. Uh, Lee, welcome to the Manager Mojo Show. So glad to have you with us today. Steve, thank you so much. I've been looking forward to this conversation. Me too. I, I know we're going to have fun talking uh, today about a number of different things. Before we dive off into our topic, uh, why don't you share with our listeners what fun thing that you've been up to lately outside of work? You know, um, so I've been on the road, un atypically on the road for the last 12 or 15 weeks, somewhere in there. So I have been having fun just sitting outside in my backyard with my husband <laughs> having dinner that it, has been having fun for me so it, i know it, it sounds very boring but that's what's been happening well as <laughs> as anybody that travels a lot knows sometimes the the simplest pleasure can be that little time when you're doing nothing <laughs> isn't it the truth i mean Business travel sounds great, and then you have your second trip. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I totally get it. Uh, you know, it, it, it takes some uh, a lot of getting used to. And, uh, it does. It, you know, and people that don't do it much, and I know all of our listeners understand exactly what we're talking about because they do it for their companies all the time. And 
yeah. so I, I know that we're going to have some fun. Let's have some fun and let's start uh, because what I'd, what I'd like to uh, talk about is kind of, I want to bounce around a little bit from your books. Uh, I don't want to just stay into one, but I want to talk about mm -hmm. ways that we can build uh, positive and high producing workplace and, and teams. Uh, I'd like to talk a little bit about that. And before we get into specifics on that, uh, if you don't mind, why don't you share with our listeners really a little bit of your story and what got you interested in this concept of building high performance teams and, uh, and even caused you to write two different books. So sure. just give us a little background. So my whole career has been in public relations communications um, for a while now since I graduated from college. Um, didn't I have a degree in medieval history, and my friend Ramona said, you should try out PR, and I did, and it stuck, and I've been very, very fortunate to be able to craft a really, what I, success to me, at least, a successful career, um, and I've had teams as small as 20, and, te you know, when I started this company, it was just me and my partner, mm -hmm. um, and teams as large as 850, in, and then 700 in my last two jobs before I started the company very large teams, and in the end, it's uh, when we started this company, uh, we decided that money was not our only currency, and so the currencies we use to measure our success are money, because money does matter, but, you know, who are we working with, because we want to work with great people, um, and we like to do the work we like to do, and can we have flexibility built into our day? So those are our four um, currencies. And that people part is as important as everything else. So, um, being I'm, and I'm not good working by myself. Mm -hmm. My assistant will definitely tell you that. Um, and so the people part was always super important. Coming, um, <clears throat> I wrote my first book after epically failing at retaining millennials in my business. Well, join the club. And then figuring club. it out for myself, right? Join the club, <laughs> Lee. Uh, a lot of people feel the same way. They've really struggled with yeah, uh, millennials. Struggled. And uh, so uh, share a little bit about that as far as what sure. caused you to start there. And then I got, I got a specific question I want to ask about millennials. So you go right ahead. Sure. So I started my company in 2002, and um, we only hired people with 10 years of experience, which by definition were 32 years old. They were all Gen Xers or boomers, basically, in my company. And after 2008, the downturn in 2008 decided I needed to look at the business model in general, a business model that takes you into a downturn of any sort, small, large, medium, whatever, is not going to be the business model that takes you out of it. And when I looked at the business model of, of just on the talent side, 10-year people who had 10 years of experience, I realized, one, that we were not going to have any people who were qualified soon because no one got hired in my business, my industry, between 2000 and 2005, basically. So we had a big donut hole of talent. And um, they're expensive, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, and so, okay, well, we're gonna, we have to grow our own. We're going to bring um, recent graduates into the business. This did not occur to me as something strange because my last two jobs, like I said, 850, 750, somewhere in there, most of the people had been under 30, and I hired, so like went along, doodaloo, changed the model, hire our first person, maybe she's 23 at the time, and her first day of the job, on her job, I actually had a meeting that morning, came into work, there was a dog in the office. I'm like, what's this dog doing here? 
<laughs> and the new woman, the new girl, you know, she brought her dog to work. She didn't just bring her dog. She brought a dog bed. She brought a water filtration system, and she brought a kibble dispenser into work her first day. I'm like, what the heck has happened here? And um, I'm like, did anybody, did she ask if she could bring her dog? No. Did she tell us she was bringing her dog? No. And I look at her manager. I go, okay, we'll find out if anyone's allergic to dogs. And then we'll go from there. No, no one is allergic to dogs. And I'm like, well, the dog's got to go. And she goes, and the managers come, uh, leave the dog can't go. I'm like, why? It's a service dog. And I'm like, that's a chihuahua. That is not a service dog. And sure enough, the dog, it was a chihuahua, had a little red vest, um, and it was a service dog, technically a service dog. I'm like, okay, well, all right. Um, guess we're having dogs in the office now. Maybe we need a policy. I don't know. We'll figure it out. The di- I came out of my office later that day. <clears throat> she was gone. I'm like, where would the girl with the dog go? And, uh, oh, she left. It's 3.30. What do you mean she left? She went to San Diego to see her mom. I'm like, and she won't be here tomorrow. Did anyone tell her she could leave early? Did she ask if she could leave? Did anyone ask, you know, is she coming back on Wednesday? What's happening? So I call my friend. I'm like, I'm so flabbergasted, Steve. I'm like, on, I'm like, what? So I call my friend, Matthew, who runs another agency in town. I'm like, this just happened. And he was like, oh, my God, ladies, millennials are so terrible. And he's always a little dramatic. And I was like, all right, Matt, whatever. Hung up the phone with him, pick up at the phone, call another friend who runs another agency, same story. I'm like, what just happened? So she came back on Wednesday. We sorted it out. It was good. And she, she's a rock star. She's now running uh, digital media for PwC. And then a few months later, a hire, uh, six millennials, all within the same uh, six weeks of time. And they were all gone in three months. 100% failure. Uh, in hiring, and I had never in my whole career, I mean, I had hired bad people, but not six at a time, mm-hmm. and we walked one and five quit in that period of time, and I was like, wow, what the, I mean, I, it was a body blow to me, frankly, because um, I always prided myself on having a good engine of recruiting and retaining, and um, and then I recalled these conversations I had around the dog and everything, right, <laughs> and I start researching and I didn't even know what a millennial was. I'm like, oh, it's a boomer. Okay, got it. But everything was super negative, super negative about mm-hmm. this generation. And we had decided, the business had decided that if we don't have a, a millennial in our business, we don't have a future in our business. And I'm a relatively positive person. I cannot be dreading coming to work knowing the future of my work is about this generation that I clearly failed at. So I decided to ignore everything I was reading and figure it out myself because uh, I'm relatively impatient that way. Welcome and to the club. Uh, I know. Well, entrepreneur, yeah. right? Yeah, absolutely. So I started interviewing people. I started reading um, classic books. I mean, I just started doing all this stuff, right? And then trial and error sort of figured it out for my small little company. We had 35 people at the time. And... Then, uh, you know, my company, Double Forte, is a public relations agency. It's a communications firm. And um, in, in general, I think management is a lot about communication. So my clients were having the same problem with their own employees that I had had. And um, so in my role in the, in the company, I'm the senior advisor, strategic person, like you said earlier. And so I was meeting with a couple of the, my CEOs of my clients, like within a three-week period, I guess, and they were all having the same problem. 
so my time ended up being about 40-50% in the client work I was doing on this topic of how to create an environment where millennials can thrive. And then, so that became part of our business. And then the next piece, I was, I was uh, talking to a book publisher about something totally unrelated. We got interrupted in our meeting by a young woman who was incredibly rude, but she had no idea she was rude. Uh, and the person I was meeting with was very frustrated. Oh, my God, these are millennials. And I said, oh, what's the problem? Knowing what the problem was. Have you tried this? Have you tried that? Have you tried this? And she looked at me. She goes, I will publish that book. And I was like, well, what book are you talking about? That book about millennials you got. I'm like, I don't got a book about millennials. What are you talking? I don't, <laughs> I don't have a book. She goes, you do. You have a book? And we need it by March 30th. I'm like, it's December 1st. I mean, what is going to happen? So I, um, you know, I decide, it doesn't happen very often where a book deal falls in your lap. Um, and it did. And so I did. So I wrote my first book that way. And it's a very practical guide. It's, you know, it's a lot of, it's the research. And I think understanding the whys and how, why older people, <laughs> frankly, boomers and Xers are, have so much frustration and why, you know, the conditions around really the, the three sets of millennials that are in the workplace, super important. Uh, you know, you can have more compassion for people when you understand their, uh, where they're coming from. Um, and it's just written very, you know, the research and then it's sort of how to break things down to have a, you know, a positive workforce. And Boy. that's how um, my first book came about. What, what a great story. And uh, just uh, to confirm what you've talked about, I, I think the book is really uh, exceptionally laid out. I, I love the way that you, you address things because uh, at, at the end of every chapter, you've got a do's and don'ts list. And right. uh, I, I absolutely love the do's and don'ts. And I happen to believe that a lot of my listeners are, if you go get a copy of this book, you're going to find all kinds of, of actionable tips that you can take, far more than we can cover uh, today yeah. in our interview. But it's just, uh, it, I, I think it's very ingenious to do it the way you did it, yeah. because it, for people that are busy and trying to do a balance, a lot of balls, trying to figure out a millennial and what to do, this is a great, great guide to do it. And, you know, I had an argument with my publisher about that uh, do's and don'ts list. So in the back of every chapter, like you said, there's a do's and don'ts, but there's a do's and don'ts for leaders, and there's a do's and don'ts for team members, staff members. Yep. yep. And they said, you can't have two audiences for your book. And I was like, <laughs> well, I'm not going to write a book if it's not for a whole team, because that is the problem with management training and books and business books and all this kind of stuff and having being a CEO myself I'm not an author by trade I'm not a writer by trade I'm not a journalist or a consultant I'm mean, a consultative but very tactical in the communication side you know all that what I have is experience in actually doing this stuff right exactly. and my experience tells me that a, they, these kinds of books need to be read as teams and um, you can't have one half of your team just have a totally different language than the other half. Um, and number one. And number two is that it's about, it's not just about one side changing. It's about everybody coming to an agreement about how to move forward. So the, my, disagree, my disagreement with my publisher was like, well, I'm not publishing the book then. <laughs> and they didn't like my original title, which I think my original title was Make It Work at Work, and they didn't like it. The sales team wanted millennials in there. I'm like, and so I said, all right, I'll give you millennials if you give me the two 
the two audiences, and so we came to a compromise that way. So good, good <laughs> compromise. What came out was really actionable, and uh, we here at Manager Mojo are all about taking action. We we don't mm -hmm. we don't care about all of the the traditional funny stuff that people believe you have to do to make it perfect. We want to not take something and put yeah. it into our business. And uh, one of my well, favorite perfection is is ridiculous, right? Yeah, You're not going to ever. You'll be perfect for an iota of time. And exactly. Then the next ne second happens. Never going to happen. Uh, right. One of the things that I, that I loved, uh, and uh, you you just address head on early in the book. You you just nail uh, some of the myths that we have about mm -hmm. millennials. Yeah. And uh, I, I want to talk through a. a couple of those. Sure. Uh, number one is that uh, people will say that millennials are entitled. Now, you have a different opinion oh. than that. Uh, you, you've learned a little something. Why don't you share that with, with no, our audience? I think it's incredibly, it is statistically impossible for 80 million people to be entitled, right? I mean, <laughs> it's not possible. It's empirically impossible for that to be true. What I believe is that millennials are conditioned. They've been conditioned to expect certain things by their upbringing, by their parenting, by their education system, and by the economy. And when the people sh and they show up in the office, and particularly, I'll just focus on one thing: this work-life balance thing, right? Right. The so work-life balance really pushed by women, working women, for the last 25 years. Uh, my mother's generation really started it, and then, and then my generation picked that up after hers, but it was work-life balance, work-life balance, work-life balance. And these uh, adult children of working mothers have been hearing that their entire lives. So when they show up into the office and they say, it's 4.30, my yoga class starts, well, working women have been working for that flexibility since they started. The difference is that these working women are still working, and we didn't really think they were going to, right? <laughs> right. Yeah, that's so, so true. You know, it's part of, you know, of course it's work-life balance. Of course, it's part of everybody's package. That's not entitlement. That is conditioning, right? The other piece is um, some things around conditioning include things like the trophy generation. You know, this, this generation gets dinged all the time for needing a trophy or a sticker or a star. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. When they do something, well, who gave it to them? <laughs> it wasn't millennials asking it for themselves, you know, signing up for nobody, wins, nobody loses soccer. <laughs> it was their parents, right? Right. And, you know, so that that really permeated, you know, and ask any kindergartner who won the game, and they all know, you know. I don't care what parent says, oh, everybody was a tie. No, it's not true. Every kindergartner knows who won the game in, you know, kindergarten soccer. So the issue is it keeps going, right? Everybody wins soccer, participation trophies. They actually happen, and they start, they're starting to tail off now, but for this generation they happen all the way through college, all the way through college. And what happens again is also another thing. So, you know, sh I have always tell people, you know, showing up is not a skill, right? So true. But showing up, <laughs> they get rewarded in a lot of, in a lot of uh, academic situations. You get rewarded for showing up. You get points for going to class. And I think that's outrageous. I think that's outrageous, points for class. <laughs> and then the third part of that is the during... Uh, the 15 years, um, let's see, 2015. So 2000, 2000 to 2015, uh, the average grade point average in this country at colleges rose a full point. So that means a three, a B minus, 
is now an A minus. A three is a four now. Or four is per, used to be perfect, right? A 4.0, perfection. Right. right. You can actually get a 5.0 on a 4.0 scale now because you can over-index because of these extra points and all this kind of stuff, right? So, uh, and to the point where UC Berkeley, one of the, you know, the hardest institutions in the country to get into, started publishing the grade point average, I'm, I'm sorry, the curve on every transcript. And the only reason you need to do that is to demonstrate that four is the end point because they found that their students were being um, disfavored over people who were getting 4.5s from lesser institutions. So, I mean, just let that sink in for a second, right? <laughs> so, and then these people, they graduate from school, they get 4.5s, they get maybe a 5, they get a 4.2, whatever. They go into the workplace, they are not used to not cranking out awesome work. But that 4.2 is actually a 3.2. So they come into work, and they do their first work, and they get a lot of like, that is not good enough. We're going to have to go back to the drawing board. They've never had that feedback ever. I got a four, I'm a 4.2 student. I'm an A-plus student. What do you mean my way my work is awesome? And they get into the real world, and that's not true, right? So these things, uh, you know, and then there's a whole lot of um, gnashing of teeth around that, too. So, you know, it is... Given those three or four facts, it is not a rocket science to figure out that there's a clash right there. But it's not an entitled clash. I think it's a conditioned clash. I totally agree with you. And, and, and it's our job as, as leaders to help people understand what the expectations are. And I think this exactly. that causes so many problems, doesn't it? Because so we, many problems. we just expect them to understand the workplace. and. Uh, they're entering into a foreign land and foreign land. if yeah. you just leave them to their own devices they're going to draw the wrong conclusion because work has changed so much from when like when i came into work my mother could tell me my father could tell me what to expect it was pretty much the same as what they had when they started their careers but the beginning of a career today what you do every day how you spend your day what is a deadline like how are you working it's totally different from when you or I started our careers. Oh, no no question about you it. You know, totally different. Uh, so, it, I mean, I have people who have never printed a piece of paper out, Steve. Go figure. Right? Yeah. So, when they, I asked for a draft, the first time this happened, I was like, what just happened? Went to the Twilight Zone, I asked for a draft to look at something, and they sent me a link. I'm like, where's my piece of paper? <laughs> well, please, the it's the link. You can go look at the link. I'm like, okay, double click on the link. And it's a Google Doc, and there are nine people in it. I see all the little circles up top with all the initials, and then I see this whole conversation going on on the left-hand side of the document, and all these colors. I'm like, this is not a draft, people. And it was live. Like, people were typing while I was looking at it. No, 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 no. I am the last guy. I don't look at things in motion, right? But this is normal. This is the norm for this generation and the generation behind it. Collaborative work, working at the same place, you know, uh, having conversation while you're working, maybe a, a world apart. And I, I just had a like a, I had a lay down. I was like, oh my god, people, <laughs> this is not a draft. And they look at me like I'm the old funny duddy, right? She doesn't know what she's talking. She prints out paper. She kills trees for a living. I mean, oh my gosh, Steve, it was such, a, it was such a clash. But you know, we had to. We then we had to put some parameters around it. I said, okay, if you're going to send me a Google link, 
lock it down. No one else is doing something. You send me what you guys want me to look at, not what you're thinking about, you know? <laughs> right, absolutely. Uh, so it was adjustment all the way around. Lee, uh, I, I think it's appropriate. Why don't you share uh, uh, a couple of things that you learned uh, to implement that helped you kind of navigate these terrible waters? <laughs> well, they're not terrible anymore, <laughs> just so you know. So you've gotten really used like, to the I'm ride. A, I'm a millennial <laughs> champion, right? I, I have great hope for us because they, you know, this generation is going to make is not going to put up with stuff that you and I put up with. Uh, so one. <clears throat> You know, you cannot assume anything. Don't assume people know what time to show up. Don't assume people know what a deadline is. And so being as specific as possible is critical. Mm-hmm. I'll give you an example around deadlines, right? So uh, you and I probably have this de- this vernacular that's, you know, end of business, close of business, end of day. Mm-hmm. These things are, they don't exist, right? There actually is no end of business time. It just sort of meant 5 o'clock in a 9 to 5 workplace. Well, deadlines in colleges now, you, and when you and I went to college, deadlines were when you passed your paper in when you went to class. That was the deadline. Deadlines in colleges are now 11.59.59 on the day that it's due. Wow. In the time zone that you happen to be in the, you know, at a specific time zone. So I could say, give it to me by the end of the day, and they did, 11.59.59, in whatever time zone they were in. So... They were right and wrong at the same time. And for management, you can't let people be right and wrong at the same time. That's on you. So driving specificity into everything. And so when people get here, they sort of like, why are we saying it's due Tuesday, June 2nd at 4 p.m. Eastern? Because we need to say those things. Yeah. <laughs> That's what we need to say. Because mm-hmm. we have people in six time zones. Well, if you don't meet the exact time zone, something could go wrong for the client, right? So being specific is super important. Setting expectations. Here's how long things should take. Here's how long, uh, you know, we don't promote you for showing up. That's not a skill. Here's how you do get promoted. You need to master things, not just check things off the box, right? And this, I think, also is a remnant of No Child Left Behind, frankly, which has been changed now. Um, because I think the intention of No Child Left Behind was was probably very positive, but what happened was that it was just check the box and move, right? You, sure. got, you got tested and then you moved on. There was no mastery involved, and that's why most student most universities now have to remediate up to 50% of their students because <clears throat> there was no mastery. Well, in that environment, then we want people to master things and then build on skills over time so that they are layering, layering, layering experience. But that has not been their educational experience. It was, you know, check the box and move. So explaining that at the beginning, here's, you might expect to stay in this position for six months or two years or it took me 10 years to become a vice president or whatever it is, right? Right. Just so people understand that just because you've done things once doesn't mean you're a master. And how are you going to demonstrate that? So setting expectations early on. Don't let someone be wrong and right at the same time. And driving specificity into everything you do um, just eliminates so much conflict. Um, so much way. conflict. And and everybody does better job. Everybody does better job when they know why they exist and what they're doing their work for. Everybody does. 
That's true, and that'll go across generations, not just millennials. Absolutely. No. In my experience, you find that when you create an environment where millennials thrive, Xers, boomers, and silence thrive too. But the reverse is not necessarily true. That's so true. Uh, Lee, I know people are going to want to know more about the work that you do. Why don't you share how they can connect with you? Sure. The best thing to do is go to my website, LeeCaraher.com, L-E-E-C-A-R-A-H-E-R.com. You can get to my agency, Double Forte. You can find my books there. You can find my blog. I talk about this stuff all the time. Um, and you can follow me on Twitter at, at Lee Carraher, on Instagram at Lee Carraher. I'm very easy to find. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. And, uh, uh, and I'm very happy to answer any questions people have. Well, and uh, for those of you that are exercising now, we'll be sure to include a link directly yeah. to Lee's website. And I encourage you to go there and, and find out about her work. Uh, but before you do, make sure you pick up a copy of the book. Uh, Millennials in Management. It's going to help you and uh, it's going to give you a lot of actionable items that you can do. So, Lee, as we uh, wrap up our conversation today, I like to leave people with a couple of action items that will help them uh, to, to move forward in their career. And I'm, I'm interested in what would be your top two action items that you'd want to have people take away from today and start to move forward in their own career. I think uh, the first thing about moving forward in your career is, is yourself defining your own success um, and not being bound by someone else's de- definition of success because then you can chart the career that you want versus the one that maybe is the easy path. Um, and then two, to be thinking um, about the most important thing I think in work is the relationships that you make in work and a friend of a friend of a friend and this is how you, this is how you build careers. The more you can think about how um, not to... Build, burn any bridges, even when you're disappointed, um, will give you many, many more options in the world. And as we all have to work longer, uh, those options will be coming to fruition much more often. Awesome. Great action items. Uh, my guest today has been Lee Carraher. Uh, she is the author of Millennials in Management, The Essential Guide to Making It a Work at Work, and The Boomerang Principle, Inspiring Lifetime Loyalty from Employees. I know you're going to want to check out her work. Please do so. Go to her website, connect with her, uh, ask her questions, and learn. And Lee, on behalf of all our audience, thank you for sharing your wisdom today, and we wish you continued success in everything that you do. Steve, thank you so much. It's been such an honor to talk with you.